Hello, and welcome to Assigned Scientist at Bachelors. I'm Charles, and I'm an entomologist. And I'm Tessa, and I'm an astrobiologist. And today as our guest, we have Laurel Hyatt. Laurel is an MD-PhD student at the University of Utah, currently in the second year of their PhD. They study tissue-specific somatic mosaicism with the colon as their current organ of choice. Outside of the lab, they DM for all queer tables in Dungeons and Dragons and hang out with their two dogs. Laurel, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's tremendous to have you. Uh, to Well, to begin with, we like to ask people, how did you get interested in science? Oh, uh, I wanted to be a sci-fi writer. I read like all of Michael Crichton's work, and I thought he wasn't a very good writer, and I thought that I could do better. Um, but I figured I needed some basic level of scientific writing in order to take on that challenge. So I got really involved in science stuff in middle school and then ended up really falling in love with it. I actually applied to my undergrad as an intended psychology and women's studies major and then ended up doing like genetics and biochemistry research. So was your first science love psychology or did you sort of cycle through different disciplines? Oh, I've always been a genetics person, I would say. From high school, I guess that was the thing that really grabbed me. I think my interest in psychology was largely from like a social justice advocacy perspective. But when it comes down to like what I like, I have a college professor who referred to the duct tape keeping the human genome together because it's mm. a incredibly fragile yet functional thing. And that has just always really appealed to me. And so I think I I have an appreciation for, you know, biology and anatomy and I mean I'm I'm half <laughs> intended physician so uh, I like human health quite a bit but I think genetics is the thing that um, has always sort of stuck with me and uh, and now I'm getting a PhD in it so I guess I'm sort of decided <laughs> <laughs> well if we take what I would consider a, a not a shining star in the sci-fi canon but the Marvel Cinematic Universe um, apparently you can just go on and keep getting PhDs. Right. <laughs> My uh, partner likes to bring that up to me to upset me, um, where he's like, how many prelim exams do you think you're going to do in your life? And I'm like, just the, I mean, just the one qualifying exam. I think I'm okay. My wife already has a doctorate and starting on her second, like this fall. Oh, so, oh. I mean, it's a thing. Good for her, but I don't have, yeah. I, I say as a hypocrite who's doing an MD PhD program, I don't have the stamina. <laughs> my but. best friend is actually planning on doing an md phd and when they told me i was like why would you do that to yourself <laughs> it's a good question it's a very I, fair I, question i mean i guess the answer to it is to be both a practical clinician and to continue doing research right yes yes i actually was yesterday uh talking to a uh, md phd student who's a few years ahead of me in the program how basically the idea is sort of that for a lot of folks, or at least the motivation to get into it is that you don't want to be like either separately. You want to be some juxtaposition of both. So a researcher who knows the clinical significance and path of their work and a physician who is involved in research and evidence-based, you know, standard of care following the latest and greatest. And like, I just... I have a terrible time choosing things, <laughs> so here I am. Fair enough. So do you have a particularly pronounced passion for the colon, or is it kind of oh. <laughs> what you're just working on? It's just, it's sort of what I'm I'm working on. I mean, I, I have an appreciation for it, I would say. I, I, I never expected to be in as close proximity to human feces uh, of different people as I am now. Mm -hmm. But um, I was actually first, I was originally going to be in a neuroanatomy lab for my PhD and circumstances changed. I, I really like the brain, but um, I'm interested in somatic mosaicism and across different tissues. And the brain space for that is uh, a little bit crowded for lack of a better word, there's an official brain somatic mosaicism network that does super awesome research. Mm. And so the idea was like, okay, what is an organ system that's not the brain that I, as a, a bold and intrepid you know, PhD student, can pursue? And uh, the colon is 
kind of fascinating to me because it's a very it's pretty simple it's a tube that goes through your body and it you know absorbs water and moves poop and then it has some of the highest disease incidence mm. globally in multiple pathologies um, well th- i have three things that i want to say okay the first is i want to make an extremely niche comparison um that will serve an audience of maybe two people um, because one of the entomologists that we've had on the show does work with ants. So the looking at somatic mosaicism in the body, you is kind of like looking at the field of opportunities to do taxonomic work in insects. Mm -hmm. And it seems like the brain is like choosing to go into ants and the colon is more like choosing to go into like, various undersung members of polyneoptera that feels right yeah. i don't <laughs> I, I don't know the ins and outs of uh, entomology that one was that just for, right. that one was just for old charles and yes, so sir. then the second the second thing is i what you just said opens up i think two great questions one is a i don't think somatic mosaicism is a concept that most people are familiar with. Mm-hmm. So definitely want to go into that. And then also your statement on incidence of disease in the colon. Mm-hmm. So first of all, could you explain somatic mosaicism? One of my favorite things. Um, I always say if I wasn't doing this, I'd be doing like linguistics work. So like I quite literally, the breakdown of the word I think is helpful. Where So uh, somatic, soma, refers to all the tissues in the body that are non-germline. So basically not sperm, uh, not eggs. So your somatic tissues, your skin, your organs, your eyeballs, all that good stuff. And um, the reason why that's significant is because mutations that arise in the germline are going to be inherited by offspring and, you know, perpetuate phenotypes and possible disease risk. Whereas mutations that arise in the soma or somatic tissues aren't going to be inherited, so they can be a lot more difficult to discover but uh, they are going to cause you uh, some problems, probably. I think the most common iteration of like somatic disease that people know of is cancer. Cancer is a disease of you know, somatic mutations accumulating. And that kind of leads into mosaicism, which is the idea that we as people are mosaics. We are you know, billions of cells all hanging out together, sometimes cooperatively and sometimes not. And those cells accumulate different mutations at different times and so i'm really interested in that at a, at a tissue level so why is weird stuff happening in my liver and not in my spleen that kind of thing and so the idea being once you put all the cells together instead of having a single genome we have a mosaic of different genomes of different mutations all throughout our body and somehow <laughs> we persist as some kind of an individual there's also a lot of bacteria in there Oh, yeah. Yeah. Respect. Lots of respect to those guys. They do make my life a little more difficult since a lot of them hang out in the colon and we have to make sure that we're letting them do their thing and doing our thing. I think the maybe the the best clarifying question next is, well, so what? Yeah. So I am interested as a future physician, right, in the development of disease and especially in the Uh, prevention of awful things through screening and surveillance and so going back to the comment about like disease incidence in the colon so like colorectal cancer is the third most common cancer in the u.s and the second most lethal i know other fun statistics like uh, there's a there was a recent demographic incident that 4.3 percent of individuals will be diagnosed with colorectal cancer in their lifetime it's oftentimes thought of a disease of aging because your uh, colon cells uh, turn over, grow forever, and you know can accumulate damage. And so the so what I think is, if we can figure out what's happening in our cells, we can catch them before they cause us problems, and maybe we can uh, figure out ways to change their course or um, divert their energies instead of coming cancers. Or I'm also really interested in inflammatory bowel disease, which has a lot of controversy i guess as to is it genetic is it environmental etc and it's certainly environmental in some capacity but there's some uh thought process that there might be a somatic role as well yeah so, well uh, then well then the question why is mosaicism important in this context mm-hmm. yeah so 
the idea being that if it's hereditary, that's really, that's easy to, I mean, that's not kind to the people who study hereditary diseases and whatnot. <laughs> no, it's, it's much easier to take someone's blood, you know, look at a aggregated genome and say, okay, you have, I think the most common example people are familiar with is, you know, BRCA. So you look for a BRCA mutation, you know, if you find one, that person is at a really elevated risk for breast cancer, you act accordingly. For issues of, you know, somatic mutations and spontaneous uh, diseases, which is comprises the majority of colorectal cancer and most cancers, actually, you can't do that. You know, you can't test someone's blood and find out what's going going on in their colon if it's only going on in their colon and so the idea of my thesis work and a lot of various projects and various organ systems i think is okay how do we figure out what's happening in just our organ or just our tissue and figure out the best thing to do clinically or therapeutically or if we should just watch and wait without you know, I, I cannot remove the colon from a person and give it back later. Um, and so well, the, not yet. Yeah, not yet. I mean, honestly, I'm pro that. Like, we can make me obsolete if we want and just do that. That'd be great. But uh, unfortunately, I'm not I'm not confident in that and happening in the next, you know, little bit. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it would be great if that happened. But although on the other hand... Um, I think it sounds really weird to have an organ taken out. Oh, can I interject with like a sort of, I think it's funny story where I, so I work with, uh, cadavers, you know, I am taking out entire organs, which is a really funny start to the story. It's absolutely hilarious. But the funny part is I have told my, uh, brother and my friend group about like the research I'm doing that we're taking out these organs and processing the tissues and at some point it came up that we were going to, you know, process a donor for the organs and the, uh, it, the basically this procedures got delayed by a few hours and my brother messages me and it's like, oh, so it's like the person just laying there. And I was like, yeah, I mean, I guess. And he was like, oh, like, are they, so they're just like laying there with like their chest open. And I'm like, no, I'm not sure what your point is. And it came out that my brother thought that we were taking like live human beings and just taking out, you know, fun organs like the entire colon and the testes and just and the pancreas and just removing those from random people just for funsies and just sending those people out afterwards on their day. Well, testes, that's. That's fine. That's, I mean, well, that's non-invasive. That's non-invasive for sure. But, um, I, I don't know if the average person would want their entire colon removed just for research purposes. Probably not. I mean, my, my medical understanding as a non-surgeon and someone who probably will never be a surgeon is like, we can take out parts of things pretty easy. Taking out the whole organs is not very nice of us for, uh, there are situations. no surgeons here to defend themselves. Hey. You whatever you want. Uh, I have to be careful because I work with some wonderful surgeons and I maintain my like non-surgical bias of like, <laughs> it's not what I would do with my life. <laughs> okay. Well, so then sort of the idea behind your research is that we can we can test people for cert, for the presence or absence of certain alleles of different genes and if they have them then they are at highly elevated risk of certain cancers for instance BRCA related mm-hmm. to breast cancer so that is part of some screening but then for other organ systems uh, like the digestive tract and specifically the colon the disease incidence they have a high incidence of disease but a low hereditary component hereditary aspect and so just doing sort of a standard genetic screening doesn't actually help you that much in determining people's risk of say developing colon cancer so then the um concept of somatic mosaicism in that these mutations can arise in colon cells at any point and therefore yeah 
yeah, yeah, sorry. I'm listening and I'm nodding my head, which you obviously <laughs> can't see. But yeah, the idea being if we can figure out basically patterns in healthy cells versus cells that are on their road to no good, you know, maybe during a routine colonoscopy, you can take some samples and instead of currently, basically, colonoscopies just look for polyps, you know, and we're like, okay, well, let's take that out. Or, if, you know, if we find a polyp, let's check back again sooner than later. Uh, the idea here is sort of, okay, I can have a person get a colonoscopy. I can take a few different healthy tissue samples. I can do some kind of really targeted sequencing to look at specific genes. And I can say, okay, come back in five years or 10 years or 15 years or 30 years. Probably not 30 years. That's a little reckless. But <laughs> you can have a, a more <laughs> you specific... You will be dead 30 idea. years from now. Who knows? Right. Yeah. Live your life. Have fun. But yeah, where. Basically, the idea is sort of to get a better handle of people's specific disease risk in a timely fashion while still being not invasive and not, you know, carving out an organ. Yeah, I completely forgot about colonoscopies and I was really sitting here wondering, but how would you get cells? Yeah. From, but there is an there is a convenient entry door. <laughs> Yeah, um, I've developed a pretty strong love of the colonoscopy as a colon researcher, where I, I didn't think about them much before. And now I'm like, you mean people are already going in and scraping out bits of colon for me? Like, you mean <laughs> there are doctors out there who are doing the work for me? That's incredible. You are probably the only person we've ever had in our podcast who has expressed a love for the colonoscopy. Listen, you know, to be, to be fair... Nobody has expressed a hatred of the colonoscopy either. This is true. The needle is in one direction, it seems. <laughs> I think it's the right one. We have an in of one on opinions on colonoscopy at all. Yeah. Well, it's it's sort of funny. In the time that I was basically developing my proposal, because I base, I one of the things that's really fun and terrifying about being in a computational lab, which is what I'm in, is that my PI was basically like, find a project and go do it, because we don't have a wet lab component, you know, and code is code and so I actually let's take a screeching on the brakes screeching the brakes I think just I don't actually know the demographics of our listeners oh yeah but I know there's at least one guy who listens sometimes who probably is not familiar with like just the 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 casual jargon of of oh, being sorry. in science well just to lay it out so PI is oh principal investigate yeah uh, not a private investigator, not someone who is following people around, but someone who is my boss, but also sort of my mentor. Um, to be fair, both kinds of PIs are kind of doing detective work. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, and then a dry lab, wet lab. Yes. Uh, so wet lab being, I think, what most people think of. Well, that's, I guess it depends. But what... I think a lot of non-science people think about when they think about science, where they're like, you know, pipetting and test tubes. And and I did, in undergrad, I started out doing wet lab research for about three and a half years. Um, did many a Western blot, which is a kind of protein blot. And um, when I first started, I broke the casing you're supposed to put it in, and I cried. And my PI let me go home. And I think that about describes my relationship with wet lab research. And so then you get to... Dry labs, which can cover a lot of things. I mean, I think that I did public health research for a couple of years, which is like phone calls and surveys, which is its own, you know, avenue. Um, and then now I do computational work uh, in my like direct lab where I tip tap on my computer and we're partnered with other researchers where I, I help out with organ processing and whatnot. But my lab itself, my PI is a former computer programmer in the industry who um, then went into uh, academia later on. So um, he <laughs> gave me free reign to kind of find a project, which is awesome but terrifying. And I came up with a lot of really terrible ideas, I think, before I came up with one that sort of worked. But in that, in that process, my mom actually had a colonoscopy and they found a polyp. And it was just really interesting. Um, for her to be going through it on like the the person side who's like this is the worst thing ever and me to be doing it on the researcher side of like thanks for getting a colonoscopy <laughs> good work <laughs> glad we found the polyp you know but yeah I, I understand they're not 
they're not beloved <laughs> in the general community, perhaps, but yeah. I appreciate them. I think they do most of the time what they're supposed to. How did we get to colonoscopies? Oh, oh, you were asking me about testing, and I was actually going to say that's something I've spent a lot of time thinking about. Like, okay, uh, what do you actually do if I, you know, find stuff? And colonoscopies are the the obvious answer. There's also the idea. There's like uh, fecal DNA tests, or basically you can test for, you know, if there's enough sloughing of colon cells that might uh be you know present in the feces which is less than ideal and has not been as successful to my knowledge in like clinical diagnostics but uh i i hold to colonoscopies as when people assessing my research are like well what what would this actually be good for i'm like well you could implement targeted uh screening and colonoscopies basically immediately which is a very imminent kind of sci-fi technology as opposed to the many years out when we, you know, take the colon out entirely, give it a wash and look at it and then put it back in. Yeah. So what is it? What is it like week in the life look like? <laughs> oh, it's pretty glamorous. I gotta say. Um, <laughs> that sounds like it. No. So I, like I said, I, I'm in a computational lab. So um, a lot of what we do is, working on the analytical pipeline of basically uh, the world of genomics is sort of intertwined with the world of big data. And you have the perpetual question of, okay, I have a few million or billion data points. And I don't know if y'all have seen that comic of like data versus evidence and they like, or and they, someone draws like a unicorn connecting the dots, you know? Like, you can basically see whatever you want to see when you have that much information. It's about differentiating, I think, what it usually calls, you know, signal from noise. And so a lot of what I do is uh, run code, write code, talk to other people in my lab who write code, and uh, uh, (laughs) feel like I'm sort of battling my computer at times. And then there's this other flip side, which is the um, processing of the organs, where basically we get a call. Uh, we're partnered with Donor Connect, which is a rapid autopsy nonprofit in Utah, where basically someone has died, and um, it's kind of a time rush to basically um, get the organs in a timely fashion. And you know, then I, I go in and. I hold a scalpel and I slice and dice and um, I was trained by a surgeon who was awesome and I it's super enjoyable actually to get to work with my hands in a more you know non-screen context and I also work on a really cool team of people who are studying other uh, organs and tissues so like my my best friend in my lab studies fertility and so he's the reason why we take out the testes. And so we work together, and I appreciate having someone else who is willing to hold a colon as we get all the feces out of it, because I don't think many people would do that for their friend, and he is committed to do it many, many times. So um, I think, yeah, I, my life is nice for, like I said, I don't like to decide, and I'm a MD-PhD student, so it's a good mix of like PhD research in the you know, in silica space on my computer, actual organs, which is somewhat clinical. And then the um, in the next few months, hopefully I will be consenting patients to get colonoscopy um, biopsies. And that will be additionally very clinical and medical. So what happens to the rest of the body once you get all the relevant organs out? Mm-hmm. So um, we basically have an arrangement where we can only take organs that aren't going to be donated for organ transplant. Mm. Uh, so that's one aspect where before, you know, they take out the research organs, um, they take out anything that, you know, is going to help a person, which is great. Um, and then they take out the rest of the organs. And then I believe that the, the bodies are usually cremated and then returned to the families who consented to organ donation for both um other individuals and science so that's the general process um 
I don't really, I don't go into the surgical suites. I could if I wanted, but I would do a lot of standing. And there's kind of this joke about med students where like your your primary role in the surgical suite is just to be in the way. And I don't feel the need to do that yeah. <laughs> any more than I have to. But yeah, it's, it's, I've actually been speaking with different people who are researchers involved in autopsy for research. And it's like a very small but devoted field, which has been kind of fascinating. Um, and I, and honestly, to go back to the, the sci-fi thing, I sort of, it, 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 it's something I really appreciate where one of the aspects of sci-fi I love the most was like Orson Scott Card, where they had the, the planet basically, where the, the life cycle includes sort of the, the death of like the piggies and they became trees and they were really confused by how humans didn't utilize their dead for the benefit of the community. Mm. And I believe there's a quote, I'm probably butchering, but something to the effect of they say like, so you're dead in no way serve your living. And I just, I really appreciate, you know, the, the families who are willing to participate in, you know, the, the research process, because in turn, I'm really hoping to be able to help people, you know, in the future. And so I think it's one of those things that I forget how morbid it can be to people who are not involved that I spend a lot of time waiting for people to die. But I think that there is this community-based element, I guess, of uh, individuals living and dying and then contributing so that other people can, you know, live better and, and die later or healthier. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> listen, we're all about death on this podcast. Mm. Great. <laughs> yeah. Well, thinking about it, I so they don't so colon is colon transplantation just not something that happens? Not, not really. I mean, they're just when you think about well, who would need a colon transplant. I guess most people will have part of their if they're having their intestines from their own body removed. Usually, it's more so the small intestine, and if they're having their colon removed, usually it's only part of the intestine i mm. i'm trying to think i i met one person who had the entirety of their colon removed and had to be on a special diet but that's generally it's pretty uncommon and the issue i think with colon transplantation is there's a lot of there's a lot of cell turnover and the whole idea of you know immunosuppression because the body is fighting itself you still want the organ to co cooperate with you and i'm not sure a transplanted colon would really do that very yeah. nicely the way that a a heart or you know a kidney might so well, i guess it is a big tube it is a big tube and an, you could probably cut out part of the tube and then it's still a tube yes that is generally my understanding how that goes. i have a master's degree <laughs> um well so you referenced this earlier also why is there so much cell turnover in the colon specifically oh so it's like an assembly line where basically the colon has these crypts, which are um, kind of test tube shaped but tiny that are involved in the absorption. So they form these little tubes and they you know, suck up the water. And basically those are exposed to a lot, a lot of mechanical damage, a lot of uh, exposures from what we eat, etc. And so they've got stem cells at the bottom that are constantly proliferating and then they kind of go through up the crypt and eventually get slopped up at the top. And so um, they basically, they it is a machine that keeps running and replicating so that everything can keep going as planned. Kind of like the skin, you know, your skin. I think that's probably the more useful way to explain is like if your skin wasn't turning over, you'd probably be having a pretty bad time considering everything your skin comes into contact with. Um, your your colon is experiencing that on the inside and the inside, and every crypt turns over about every three days. Which I tried to explain to someone, and they're like, "Well, three days isn't that fast." And I'm like, "Well, when you when you think about like a neuron taking like twenty years to regenerate, yeah, it's I was kind about of to say, you know, even even skin cells don't turn over that quickly. I don't think. Yeah, it's wild to me, and and it's something where like when I think about it in my brain, it feels like a conveyor belt going at like two hundred miles an hour. And it's one of those things where it, I think that's part of the reason why I find the field just really a somatic mosaicism, like really interesting, 
is you're going to have a completely different time looking at the colon than in, you know, the brain where a lot of things that people look at are happening in development or the heart basically doesn't regenerate at all, which is a problem when you have heart damage. But, you know, as a result, heart cancers are pretty rare. And so like every tissue is its own puzzle with its own set of rules. So then is this rate of regeneration directly linked to the high incidence of diseases associated with the colon? Yes. Um, That someone might get mad at me for saying that definitively because it's like a very accepted theory but i'm like yeah obviously like most definitely (laughs) where basically anything you know that has to replicate itself significantly more is going to have more hiccups and mess ups and yeah you know i mean i guess intuitively that makes sense where if cancer is developing out of random mutation the more opportunities for random mutation you have the more likely it is to develop yeah exactly Okay, so what are the, like, the directions of your research right now? So, uh, like I mentioned, we're trying to get colonoscopy stuff off the ground. Uh, COVID made a lot of patient-based stuff super, super difficult. And then in terms of using, you know, cadavers and colon-based, I'm really interested in, I call it regional somatic mosaicism. So basically, uh, colorectal cancer and inflammatory bowel disease look different along like the length of the colon like the right side and the left side have completely different um outcomes oftentimes treatments presentations etc and so i am looking at let's yeah that's the question right like (laughs) it is one of those things that is sort of funny in research where it's like everybody knows and 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 then it's like well why and it's like well I don't know. It could be a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> Who can say? And I would like to say personally. And so uh, there's been theories, again, like, is it environmental? Is it somehow like anatomically based? I'm wondering if it's something that arises in development, like early on, because um, the right side of the colon derives from a structure known as the midgut. And the left side derives from a structure known as the hindgut. And they basically do different funky things in development. And I'm wondering if there's some way that those changes that happen, you know, in organogenesis or in the development of organs when, you're, you know, in the, in the fetus somehow set the stage for decades later, the domino effect of different mutations arising. I don't know. But um, there's this kind of really interesting method of analysis. It's called, they're called mutational signatures. And I've been trying for about six months now to figure out how to explain these in like a cool, fun, sexy way. And it's really difficult because it's sort of complicated. But basically the idea is instead of looking at the specific mutations themselves, you can look at all the mutations together and see what patterns there are. And you can tie those patterns back to specific mutagenic processes like there is a signature that relates to alcohol that's like found in the esophagus there's a signature that's just associated with cell proliferation that's found in basically every tissue there's um, a signature associated with like e coli that you can find so basically in looking at different mutations across the length of the colon and extracting these signatures and then kind of making a lineage of cells and mutations the way that you might make a phylogeny and evolution my hope is to figure out sort of what's happening when and where and then look at that in the healthy colon and then look at that in the diseased colon and say okay at what point can we you know point a finger at this and be like this is about to be bad i don't know if that makes sense (laughs) with regards to a direction but so I, I hold a really gross measuring tape up to colons and I mm. <laughs> and I take samples at different lengths. And then I, I hope and I pray that my pipeline will tell me cool things. Yeah. I, I'm glad you mentioned a measuring tape because it would not have occurred to me how you might have measured these otherwise. Like mm-hmm. literally was not even thinking about that. Yeah, I donated my own measuring tape, which looking back is like <laughs> such a me thing to do where I could have just ordered one and had the lab buy it but i was like this is my project and this is my measuring this is my measuring tape i've had for years and i give this part of me to this project the people 
are donating their organs. Yeah. Are donating an external organ of the measuring tape. A tool that I have carried with me across, you know, states and whatnot. Absolutely. In a colonoscopy, first of all, Mm -hmm. how would you get a, like, scientifically useful number of cells? Oh, yeah. So, um, crypts themselves have an average of about 2,000 cells, and so that's the functional absorptive unit I mentioned earlier. And there's about 100 crypts per square millimeter, I believe. And so the idea being, there's a lot of cells in a very small amount of area, and if you can take them across different regions, there's a lot to go on. Now, the question with colonoscopies is it's much easier to get the exact location, and you have to process those. Random samples are often taken in colonoscopies anyways, and because the basically the epithelium or the surface of the colon isn't innervated, it doesn't actually cause pain. In patients who are already getting colonoscopies and having random biopsies, it's not considered additional risk to take additional samples. So then the question of how many uh, samples do I need is a fun question I have (laughs) lost many a night of sleepover. But the hope is the research I'm doing in cadavers where I have the entire colon to look at will sort of inform how many I need to take from colonoscopies. But um, it's it's definitely a question in in progress. And uh, one again, I appreciate my my PI, my boss, because he is a phenomenal mentor and gives me all the space to be like, huh, that's an interesting problem. What do you think? Which is a great way to fret and stress over the answers to these questions. But it's it's been a it's yeah, it's it's been it's in progress. And so the answer to your question is, I don't know. <laughs> We're gonna find out. Fair enough. So there are different parts of the colon, right? Yes. There's the like the big one, and then the side one, and then the sigmoid colon, which is right in front of the rectum. Uh, yeah. So there, yeah. The we consider the ascending colon, transverse colon, descending colon, sigmoid okay, rectum. Well, you want to be official about? Yeah. It. Sorry. <laughs> um, those so, are the main parts. Yeah. Okay. So most of the colon doesn't like feel pain. The yeah, the epithelium, like the top, like the the part of the tube that's touching the air, <laughs> uh, inner tube is, uh, yeah. And it's one of those things where I think I want to be careful because then if someone's like, well, I had a colonoscopy and it was painful, I don't want to be like, no, it wasn't. But the anatomy of it is such that the, the top part where they're just kind of scraping, it's kind of like, I guess if you, I don't know, if you scratch the top of your arm, you could probably slough off some stuff. It's a little deeper than that, but it's not deep enough where you're hitting nerves. That makes I'm any just sense. Scratching my arm. To... Yeah. That's yeah. No. I. I know. I know what you're saying. Yeah. Do you have anything else that you would like to say on your research? We haven't gotten to. I like what I do, and I think it's fun as someone who has listened to the podcast and heard a lot of people talk about their specific thing to talk about my specific thing where I think probably uh, <laughs> there's this funny cohort of people in like my department who sort of feel sorry for me because they think that my, my PI told me to work with the colon and, and then they find out that like, no, this is my own project that I chose. And, and I'm just like, you know what? I just really, really want to look at the colon in deciles <laughs> and compare this like very specific data thing across the colon. Like, that is my little specific hill. I have set my flag and I am going forth. Somebody's got to do it. Somebody's got to do it. Somebody's got to do it. What would you say would be like the outcome from your research that you're most hoping for? You know, mm-hmm. what would be the ideal outcome for your research? I want a like a very feasible gene panel and pipeline that a person like a clinician can press a button not press a button. I mean, it's more involved than that, but can implement in a clinic and it will help people, you know, avoid the progression of disease without their knowing. Cause like early intervention is everything. And so I think the goal is maybe impossible goal is to have like, here's, here are the genes to look at. Here are the things to look at. We have really incredible recent like sequencing technologies from the, the past few years that make 
remarkable things possible. Like, can we help people avoid pain and suffering and, and, and money and, you know, mortality? That's sort of the ambitious big picture. Yeah, that is kind of an interesting point where like a lot of what you're working on now wouldn't maybe wouldn't have even been possible 10 years ago. Absolutely not. Like canonically not. Where even just I use, which is a whole nother thing, but I we use a technology known as duplex sequencing, which is like the last eight years basically came into existence and has been in the past few years um, optimized to the point where it's feasible to do what we're doing. Like it's it's one of those things where like i said the questions of like okay why (laughs) why is the right and left colon different have been around for for decades but it's really only now that there are a lot of both biological and like computational tools to sort of do what i'm doing I, i i feel excited to have stepped into the party at the right time so once you graduate with your md phd what would a week in the life look like then oh ideally i would have more money (laughs) um eight years of eight plus years of being a grad student is uh a little a little hard on the wants but the the hope is to do a some version of a a residency that has a research component so there's like pstps which are physician scientist training programs that are basically residencies that include research and i really want to be a uh a medical geneticist is the current plan you know basically keep working in genetics but work on the more clinical diagnostic side of things and so i will basically be involved in research probably 80 percent of the time and then have like a, a day a week where i get to work with people as their physician and you know be someone they hopefully trust and who treats them well i mean i think that's the dream (laughs) besides having money (laughs) or just slightly more money than i have now well then Uh, the other question do you plan are you are you are you devoted to colons or are you open to sort of organ polyamory (laughs) i am very open to organ polyamory (laughs) i think the colon has been a a trustworthy organ system i think that the colon has a lot going for it and would recommend to any of my friends. Um, but I think that one of the things that's kind of exciting about research, right, is it is in, it is constantly in response to itself, right? And so I have no idea what I would be working on in 20 years in genetics, and I think that's part of the fun, you know? And so I think if I, if, I, if I truly fall in love with the colon in the next few years, I would consider gastroenterology. But right now, I think I, I love the, the genomes more than I love the cells in the colon they are coming from. Any other flirty organ systems caught your eye? So I have toyed with the liver. We had a bit of a tryst. Mm-hmm. Um, I, a flirtation. A flirtation. I, I mean, the liver is actually my favorite organ. I think the liver is underappreciated. It does regenerate. Yeah, it, it regenerates. It gets very little appreciation. It is the reason why, you know, people talk about detox diet. And I'm like, no, you just got to love on your liver, you know? So I've thought about the liver a lot. Like I said, the brain maintains a the brain is maybe a little bit the one that got away but that's all right i plan to have a long career listen between the three of us Mm -hmm. right the brain is a little bit overplayed it is a bit overplayed it is and no offense to my best friend who wants to do brain research (laughs) you know the brain gets a lot of attention and i think some of that is warranted and some of that isn't um and i myself recognize i am part of the problem but uh, yeah, I think the plan right now is just to see what the future holds when I finally graduate, you know, 107 years from now um, <laughs> and have fun with it. Yeah. Well, I think that is a great place to move into the final section of the podcast. The end game. Yes. Did I? I sent you the list of questions. You did. Okay. Is there one that you would like to answer? Oh, so I'm a I'm a big horror person. I, I love horror a lot. And so the the body horror question, which if any parasites would you be a willing host for? Wonderful. I love. I mean, especially with the colon, right? Where I'm like, we have a super symbiotic sweet deal going on. 
with bacteria. And so it's like the next level of like, okay, what about a parasite? And to be honest, I, I don't know. Because on the one hand, my feelings are a little hurt, I think, that a parasite would be in my body and not contribute. That doesn't feel like a healthy relationship to have. <laughs> yeah, but on the other hand, <laughs> hear me out. What are those, those like brain parasites that like make the like the ants do weird things? Where I'm like, if I had a parasite who was committed to making me like better about cooking and going for walks, like maybe <laughs> like well, unfortunately, one... cordyceps does kill you. <laughs> so what? if you're an ant, I don't think cordyceps kills humans. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to figure out what kind of parasite, because I'm thinking of like alien parasites, anything's on the table. Toxoplasma gondii is the one that goes after mammals. Oh, yeah. the I know about that. People think about it with kitty litter, but it's more so meat related. Yeah, I don't think I want yeah. that one. <laughs> it's one of those things where in the in the human, as the clinician sense, as someone who I started my infectious disease unit three days before the COVID pandemic started in med school. I am not very fond of parasites and bacteria and viruses. Yeah. I, would I do want to say distance. one thing. I want to say one thing about toxoplasmosis. Okay. I think from what I can tell, the evidence that it actually like controls your brain to like mm -hmm. love cats and want to be near cats mm -hmm. um, is not really there robustly. Mm -hmm. But also, Alan's sounding off. Um, <laughs> if there were a parasite in my brain and its only purpose was to be like love cats yeah cats love cats i would be like it would make z yes <laughs> i have no problem with that i just yeah. when people come and they're like you only love cats because of toxoplasmosis i don't care yeah it's a I good time cats. yeah and i mean it, that's i don't know that's a lot of things in your body that you do because I mean, you get into the whole, the nihilism of, of, of endorphins and oxytocin and loving other people or whatever. But I'm like, if a parasite wants to give me like crocheting as a hobby, who am I to say no? So I, I feel like a parasite who like adds a feat or quirk is, is, will be reasonably welcomed into my, my, my household. Although I feel like at this point we could end up in a semantic argument about what, what qualifies a parasite and what is like a symbiont or, you know, hey. a mutualist. Oh, yeah. Yes. And I think that's part of the thing I'm thinking about, too, with the question where a lot of the things I thought about, I was like, well, I, that's not a parasite. That's just a thing that's hanging out with me. Yeah. Um, and, and so I guess my, my kind of disappointing answer is probably no parasites I've heard of. Would I be a willing host? But the other thing is, I think you're maybe because you're not an entomologist, <laughs> you're leaving a lot of great options on the, the table. Ta yeah, where they are superficial infestations and then they like hatch out of your body. So, you, for example, mm -hmm. a lot of like anytime you get a bunch of entomologists together, in my experience, you get at least one person talking about the time that they got a bot fly and then let it hatch out of them. Oh, how fun. So that's an option. You know, I guess I would consider that. I don't I don't think it'd be something I would, you know, skip towards with excitement, but I guess there are worse things than to contribute to the life cycle of another organism. I'm on the fins about it because on one hand, I do love botflies. I think mm. they're really cute. They're just like so Have you seen a botfly? I think so. It doesn't come to mind immediately. We'll look it up later. I oh. would say if you're not squeamish, but like you handle colon so i think you're okay yeah i was i tell um, people sort of like <laughs> i'm very good at what i do because it takes a lot and by lot i mean i haven't found it yet the thing that unsettles me there you go and so there's so just there's so like there's so round they're so perfectly round and then the adults don't even have mouth parts so they just got this like spherical head they're they're really cute flies okay so like on one hand i love them I would mm -hmm. love to have that story. I would love to get those photos. <laughs> Hello. Right. On the other hand, stuff under my skin really freaks me out. Well, and it's one of those things where I'm I'm thinking of like the long term. I'm like, what if I want to get a tattoo there? And like now I've got like a like the the skin 
I don't know how what kind of scar it leaves. I like, think it heals over pretty. You think well. it heals pretty well? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So that's that's like and a short term commitment. What cooler tattoo could you get? You're right. Than like a botfly on the place where With you a had a botfly. You're right. You're right. So now you have an even better tattoo option. You know what? Okay, then that's the parasite for the tattoo option and the tattoo option. We did it exclusively. <laughs> that's the. That's the gay agenda. That's the gay agenda right there. We found it. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't... I, that, I feel like that's an episode of a podcast. <laughs> well, Laurel, you've been a tremendous guest. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. Uh, if people would like to find out more about you or about your research, where should they look? Oh, so <laughs> I have a Twitter. It's just my name, Laurel Hyatt. I'm going to be real with you. I mainly tweet about my dogs and trans jokes, but I do occasionally reference being a grad student and uh, results will be forthcoming on my Twitter. And uh, beyond that, my my PI is actually more <laughs> science-y. His name's Aaron Quinlan, and he retweets nice things about me and my research. So, But you should follow me because I'm funny, probably. Not for the science. Sure. But, um, yeah, other than that, I think keeping an eye on colon somatic mosaicism papers because it is not a very there's not a lot of elbows in that room so you'll, you'll find me wonderful um well i am on twitter at cockroach arles and tessa and i am on twitter at spacer mace s-p-a-c-e-r-n-a-s-e or on my website tessafisher.com uh if you like the show or you think other people might like the show please tell them about it because supposedly a word of mouth is the number one way that podcasts grow. And until next time, keep on sciencing.